So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Love Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection with your hosts, Rico Shields and Jean Victoria Norlock. Bringing your inner light to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this Thursday edition of Everyday Connection. I'm Rico Shields. We're going to have a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about everything from publishing books to uh, we might even talk about the Knights Templar. Uh, I know it's a subject that people find really, really interesting. I always have. And as we usually do at the beginning of our show, I'd like to give a shout-out to our friends and family over at Inner Child. Hope you guys will visit them. You can find them at innerchild.ning.com. Great group of folks. Uh, We have a World uh, Peace Poetry Contest that's going to be starting. uh, We're going to be accepting a submission starting on the 15th. Um, And you can find out all about that over there. We've got a website that's set up, and I I think there's an address already, but I just don't uh, don't have it right in front of me. But what we do have is Jane Victoria Norlock. Hey, Jane. Good evening, darling. How are you? I'm just lovely. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. That's just the way to be. I would think, and yeah. We also have with us already... Our special guest this evening, Brian Kennard. Uh Brian is a publisher, a writer, uh, and a uh, seeker, a questioner. One of my favorite occupations in life, a questioner. Because <clears throat> uh, we always believe we can, we can and should question just about everything. Don't believe everything you think. Um, but I, I believe Brian's with us. How are you, Brian? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for for having me on the show, guys. Oh, we're glad you could join us. Tis our pleasure. <clears throat> so, Brian, um, Gene often starts with a pretty open-ended question that gets us in trouble. Okay. Um, I love those. <laughs> and um, uh, I'm not going to do that this time, though. You can. But sometimes I'm not. Sometimes, sometimes she starts differently. You know, when she knows folks, uh, just uh, in the interest of you know authenticity and being right out there, uh, Brian is Jean's publisher. So, uh, but in in order to explain to you what's going to fall in line with um, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, um, Brian found me, or I found Brian. Um, simply because I googled Grail Seekers, um, 
and you know, oddly enough, my own quest as an author began surrounding the legends of the Grail. So, went in search of small publishing company, I Grail Seekers, and there was this man who was um, out there and happened to be a publisher and also happened to be a, a great debunker of BS. So, you know, that's cool. <laughs> Um, and that, you know, it, it's interesting that, again, the synchronicities of life, how you have the similarities in backgrounds, never seen each other, never talked to each other, and, and one or two words can bring you together. And we've been working together now, Brian, for what, two years? Almost? Just about, yeah. Yeah. So you're a publisher um, and an author, and you, you started your own publishing company. What? an opportunity I have to question you about that before we get into all the other stuff. Um, sure. You became an author first? Yes. I spent 11 years in the corporate world. Uh, my background is is in running businesses, small businesses, and then in a large corporate setting for, for 11 years. And I was miserable with what I did. I, I enjoyed a lot of the aspects of it. I I enjoy being a good capitalist, and I enjoy being able to to do all the things business-wise that I do. But the particular job that I had for low in those many years was was killing me. And discussed this a lot with my lovely wife Laura, who said, "Just quit." Are you crazy? Quit? <laughs> I mean, you know, I. Made very good money at what I did, and I uh, said, well, what am I going to do? She said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So I said, well, I kind of want to finish this book I'm writing. She said, well, finish it. Just quit and do it. So I did. Uh, two years ago in September, as a matter of fact, was uh, my last day working for the man, and um, I haven't missed the man, and as far as I can tell, the man hasn't missed me. So it worked out well all the way around. But um, I finished writing my first book, Skullduggery, 45 True Tales of Disturbing the Dead, which is all about uh, famous grave robberies, which that's a story in and of itself. But um finished that and kind of looked around and had a buddy of mine that did graphic arts and was going to lay it out for me and do the cover art, and he was booked up for a number of months. So I was kind of sitting here thinking, well, what am I going to do now? I've got a book. I wanted to go the independent publishing route, and I thought, well, I'm a smart guy, or at least I tell myself I'm a smart guy, and I did it all myself. And the end product turned out fairly well. Uh, figured out how to do all the ebook publishing and print publishing and using a lot of the skill sets that I had before. And I got the book out there and I thought, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I thought, well, I can help other people out that are in the same boat that I'm in. And thus, Grave Distractions was born uh, and put up a website. And uh, you were actually. Nikki, the first author that contacted us. So um, you got the ball rolling. And now I think, at last count, we have the rights for either print 
and digital or just digital publishing on 42 different titles. And I've got about another five or ten in the pipeline, too, as soon as I can get those out. So we've been able to help out a lot of folks that, that are pursuing their their dreams of writing. And I'm a happy camper. That is so cool. I, I, I did not know I was the first, um, which is really cool. I've been sending, you know, tons of people your way. When people approach me, I'm always, well, go see Grave Distractions because they're small and they care about their authors. They'll talk to you and walk you through it and you, you'll have control of your stuff. And, um, it, you know, always always in telling people about the company, it's like he gets it because he's an author who was struggling with figuring out how to publish his book. So he's an author turned publisher, um, which I think changes the game a little bit when you're an author and you've just dedicated how much time for some people years to write a novel. And it's really an emotionally trying experience to hand that over to somebody and, and see them, you know, do stuff with it. And, and the idea of not, being able to control the content and not being able to control the distribution. And it can be scary when you've dedicated sure. that much of your your inner being to creating something. So I think for um, a lot of people, it's, it's a comfort to have a publisher who is an author and who came up that way. It's, you know, it, it's a unique way to get into the business. I needed to publish my book, so I became a publisher. It's just cool. And that's awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah, and that's that's really what we believe in. And I remember this has been about a year ago. A buddy of ours had talked us into to going to a local bookstore here for a book signing for a mystery author that she really liked. And he was, she was, went up and got his uh, autograph in the book and was talking to him a little bit about the cover art. And he said, you know, I had the hardest time with my publisher, and it, uh, a recognizable publishing name. I won't say who it is on the air. But they sent a first draft to me, and I hated it. And it was like pulling teeth to try to get them to do a new cover for me. And I thought, well, that sucks. You know, <laughs> you know why, why should it be like that? And that's not how we operate. You know, yes, I will tell you if you if I think an idea is extremely bad. I mean, that's that's what my role is. I'm I like to run the business as I'm advising folks, and I'll tell you exactly what I think. But yes, we want the author to be in control. We want the author to get the lion's share of the profits because it's their creative genius that has birthed this product. We're just putting a a, a nice bow on it and getting it out there and doing all the the nerdy technical stuff. To, to get it there, which I enjoy doing too. So it's kind of a, a win-win all the way around. But, you know, if you've got a personal problem with the Apple iTunes store because or iBook store because they, you know, gypped you out of something, you don't want your book there. All right. We don't have to sell it there. You know, or if uh, there's a certain content that you want in there. We fully believe in the freedom of speech and expressing yourself. So we will get your content out there. And it's not necessarily about what your niche is. I I never wanted to to be a guy that said, oh, well, you know, we only do 
books about UFOs, or we only do books about the paranormal. So we're not even going to look at what your stuff is. Because I want to work with people that are passionate about what they're doing, no matter what they're doing or what they're writing about. And it's uh, it's been interesting. We've gotten a, a number of a, a lot of varied titles out there from uh, one of our new authors is Kid Hudnell. He has a series called Spirits on the Border that are all about ghost stories in the Southwest. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we just did a book about Vedic astrology. So, you know, but once again, these are folks that are passionate about what they do, and that's where we want to be at because it's more fun that way. It definitely is, and coming from the authors, um, and, I mean, I've I've approached you with with a lot of crazy ideas. (laughs) So right from the very beginning, you know, I want to do this. Um, I want to do that. I want to do it. And and it's it's never been a trouble to for you to understand where I'm coming from and for you to figure out ways to make it, to make it happen. Um, I, now here's a question that I'm curious about because uh, it's an interesting name for a business. So where did the idea for grave distractions come from? That that would have to, the credit would go to my buddy, Charlie Milson, who uh, was a history teacher and is now a preacher in a small town in uh about an hour north of Nashville, where I live, called named Westmoreland, Tennessee, and he preaches in a church now and runs the local food bank. Charlie is one of those saints that walks among us. Uh, but he wrote the foreword to Skullduggery, and he used the phrase "grave distractions" in the foreword. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'll name the company because. It, that's what writing should be about. It should be a serious distraction from what your normal life is, whether it's uh, enriching yourself with something or reading a ghost story or uh, anything else. I mean, reading needs to, to be the bubble that's around you that keeps out everything else for a little while and where you can curl up with your book and enjoy it. And that's where the name came from. It's, it's really such an awesome meaning behind a name for a publisher. Um, now you you put your own book out. How long did you work on Skullduggery? And can you give us a little bit of background on Skullduggery and how it came out? And sure. It came out? I, the whole process, start to finish, I had been writing on it a little bit here and there before I quit working for the man. Um, probably about two or three months on and off. And then uh, once I quit, I devoted three and a half, four months to finishing it up. And that was from finishing the writing up. Um, I'd compiled a ton of research and sifting through all that to get the stories. But the book is about famous grave robberies. And I know everyone thinks, why did you write a book about famous grave robberies? Well, it goes into another passion of mine, which is hidden history. And these stories are not gross. They're not um, the typical horror stories that you'd think that, that they would be. They're the extension to someone's life story. And I got interested in the topic 
because a, a friend of mine from Quest Publishing had contacted me about doing a review and an interview with Patrice Chaplin, who's Charlie Chaplin's daughter-in-law. And, and she had written a book called City of Secrets, which was about uh, some time she'd spent in Spain with a group that she thought held the secrets to the Holy Grail. And it deals a lot with the Rensselaer Chateau uh, theories of the bloodline of Jesus and the Holy Grail. And anyway, this was back during the, the the late 50s and early 60s that this happened to her. So I thought, you know, I need to do some background checking on the Chaplin family because I I know about a, as much about Charlie Chaplin and the family as the average person does. And in doing that background research, getting ready for this interview, whether to write my review. I found out that in 1978, three months after Charlie Chaplin died on Christmas Day, two out-of-luck auto mechanics in the little Swiss village where he lived for the last 15, 20 years of his life or so, um, decided that they would steal Chaplin's body and ransom it back to the Chaplin family. And I read this, and I, I thought, this has got to be an urban legend. And I found newspaper articles, and sure enough, it was a true event. These two guys called up uh, in a chaplain and said, we've got Charlie's body. We'll give it back to you for 400,000 pounds, which we're talking 1978 money. It's not anything to sneeze at now, but there was a lot of money back then. Large pile. I Exactly. I mean, once again, it reads like fiction. But the Chaplin family really thought the idea was ludicrous. And Una herself had said, you know, Charlie would have laughed at the whole idea. So they didn't pay any attention to it. Well, weeks drug out, and our our two mechanics get really antsy at this point because they're not getting any rhythm from the, the Chaplin family. So they upped the ante a little bit. They said, all right, we've got the body, but we're going to target uh, your grandchildren if you for either kidnappings or other violent acts if you don't pay us off. Well, that did it. And it went to the, the Swiss police. And uh, they finally, I believe it was a month after Charlie's body was stolen, actually went public with this. And... At a predetermined time, the the body nappers were supposed to call back for, with instructions on where to leave the money. Well, the Swiss police, and keep in mind, this is 1978, and most telephone systems were not computerized, but, but actually tapped 200 different pay phones in the area where they thought the body nappers would be calling from. And sure enough, they got a hit arrested the two guys who, after a little pressure from the Swiss police, led them to, to Charlie's body, where they promptly returned it back to the cemetery where he was buried uh, and put a ton of concrete over it to make sure that it never happened again. And I thought, my God, this is 1978, once again. This is modern history we're talking about here. We're not talking about medical students that are going out looking for cadavers. We're not talking about Egyptian grave robbers, which are the classics that you hear of. This is a, a, a real story, and I kept finding these stories. They kept popping up. So I, that's why I wrote the book. 
it it was almost a train wreck of of research and writing. <laughs> almost a train wreck. You uh, uh, not to change the subject too much uh, because you've already got me sold on the book. I got to go get it now. Um, um, yeah, you got to send me a copy, Brian. Yeah, okay. I will send you both copies. I'll, I'll get you good. my new address tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you mentioned in there, uh, uh, coming across the Grail story, or yes. Grail Seekers, uh, and I know that you have a blog and website that's about Grail Seekers, and uh, at least in our bio here, uh, you kind of got, got off because of a... Uh, Small, elusive reference to the Knights Templar. Well, yeah, when I was in college, uh, I took you know the mandatory Western Civilization class that you know everybody has to take, and we got to the Crusades, and there was a little paragraph about a group that I'd never heard of before, and I, even as a younger man, enjoyed history, and had never heard of the Knights Templar, and my textbook made a reference to uh, how powerful an organization this was, that it reached, they literally had agents in every royal court in Europe, and they created, arguably created, the modern-day banking system and the the concept of a check. Um, at one point, they owned half of the farmable land in Europe, and that was about it. And I thought, a paragraph? These guys obviously had a little bit more to do with the history of the Crusades and the history of Western civilization than a paragraph. Right. So I started doing a lot of research into the Templars. And, you know, notwithstanding all the Dan Brown and other conspiracy theories, they were a fascinating organization that were uh, came about in... 1098, 1099, during the First Crusade, with nine knights who were led by a man named Hugh de Payne, who went to Jerusalem ostensibly to protect the roads uh, in and out of Jerusalem for pilgrim traffic. And, of course, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that go around that because there's really no evidence that they actually did that. Uh, some people think that they were digging under the Temple Mound for something, and there's been some anecdotal evidence of that over the years. In the uh, 1870s, a gentleman by the name of Charles Warren uh, was part of the British Army that, and conducted a survey of Jerusalem uh, and did some digging under the Temple Mount and found some evidence of excavations under there and some Templar-related artifacts until uh, the Muslims uh, that were there that uh, operate the mosque there at the Dome of the Rock, made them quit digging. Uh, Charles Warren, oddly enough, too, was the police chief in London when the Jack the Ripper murders was going on. But anyway, um, so Hugh Payne and his, his eight other buddies spend a number of years in the Holy Land, and they come back to Europe. And whether they found something there in the in the Temple Mound or in Jerusalem, uh, or whether Hugh de Payne was just a very charismatic person that got people to believe in his cause, uh, 
started getting donations and started getting people wanting to join this very new idea of a monastic warrior group. And because that's what they were. They took basically monks' vows. Uh, they could not wed. Uh, they had dietary restrictions. They uh, basically took an Azurite vow. Uh, they didn't shave their beards. Uh, they gave all their money to the, the Templar organization. No one really had anything to speak of except their own basic equipment that they owned. And everything went to the organization. Well, over the, the course of the next few hundred years, their ranks swell, and like any monastic organization at the time, they get involved in businesses. Um, their priories that they set up all throughout Europe were centers of commerce, and one of the things that they, they did was banking. And they had the brilliant idea of uh, sort of, John's son is going off to the Crusades and needs to take money with him. Well, the Templars would issue uh, Sir John's son a little piece of coated paper that he could cash in at the Priory in Jerusalem or in Acre or wherever he was going for that amount of currency that was deposited by his father. So that way, if he was waylaid by robbers, uh, you know, there's no value in a piece of paper to them. And thus the check was born. And they would lend money and, and such and created an international banking empire. They also had a, a, a great fleet, too, that some people believe um, the Templars came to North America using their, their knowledge of the seas. But they were very influential uh, within the royal courts of Europe. There was a Templar president at the signing of the Magna Carta. Um, the, they would actually listen to Islamic scientists and mathematicians of the, of the day that they would come across, which was something that most Christians during the Crusades would totally discount anything that came from Islamic culture. You know, whether it even if it was a hard science thing. They recognized the value of that. Uh, Matthew Paris even notes that they're very tolerant uh, religiously, which I know sounds like a weird dichotomy. We're gonna we're a warrior monastic group and on one hand and on the other hand we uh have protected the rights of Muslims to pray at the Dome of the Rock, uh which Paris gives an account of in one of his letters in the histories of the Crusades. So, once again, a very intriguing organization that uh, lives with us today, uh, especially today, as a matter of fact, since today is October 13th. Mm -hmm. In 1307, uh, the Templars had become very powerful uh, in 1291, Acre had fallen, which was the last bastion of Crusader uh, strength in the Holy Lands. And the Crusades were all but over. And the Templars really didn't have a purpose anymore. So they kept conducting their commerce. And they, uh, the uh, King of France, Philip the Fair, 
owed a ton of money to the Templars and decided that a way to sidestep that was to accuse them of heresy. And at dawn on October the 13th, all the sheriffs in France opened up letters that said to arrest the Templars on charges of heresy. <coughs> so, and they did. Now, the modern, the, I'm not going to say the modern day, the the most popular explanation of that, because a lot of people, um, I, I've done a lot of the research myself, but a lot of people, like you mentioned Dan Brown, okay, they'll read the Dan Brown stories and then they never go past that. They never look into the truth behind it. So the modern day perception is really that it was, the church was threatened by the Templars' power and they wanted to shut them down. Um and you're saying it's the king of France that... Well, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, Philip the Fair had to get the okay from the Vatican to do this. Uh, but he, but the story goes on and has been uncovered a little bit in the, in the last few years. Uh, well, oddly enough, one more thing about October the 13th. It was a Friday. Yep. And there's the great debate on whether... Uh, Friday the 13th has gotten a black mark from that day forward or not simply because of the arrest of the Templars. Uh, I'd like to think that it it has, and it's one of our collective consciousness ways of remembering a great travesty of justice. But in recent years, the Vatican has released documents that were supposedly misplaced in the Vatican archives. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I yeah, I believe that one too. But a uh researcher by the name of Barbara Fraley um uncovered some documents uh called the Parchment of Shion. And in this document, a couple of years after the Templars were arrested, the Pope at the time absolved them of all charges of heresy. But you have to remember one thing about charges of heresy back in the Middle Ages. The church itself didn't have any arrest powers. So they had to rely upon whatever monarch and whatever municipality it was to actually arrest the person that was charged with heresy. <coughs> Pardon me. So that's that's how it goes hand in hand. Philip the Fair had made a deal with the Pope to greenlight this. And still years later, after they were, the Templars were officially absolved of any wrongdoing, they still, a number of them, uh, languished in French jails. And in 1314, Jacques de Molay, uh, along with his seneschal, Geoffrey de Charnay were burned at the stake um, on or on March 14th, I believe. Either the 14th or the 17th. I've seen both uh, dates um, at Point Neuf, right on the Isle de Cité in Paris. Um, and that supposedly, as far as history is concerned, is the end of the Knights Templar, is with the death of Jacques de Molay. It's not, though, uh, because the vast wealth of the Templars was never found. There's evidence that uh, they were tipped off 
that this was coming, and Jacques de Millet and a number of the other French knights stayed. And in a number of countries like Portugal, they were never charged. Uh, in England, the Templars were kind of slapped on the wrist. Uh, one of the popular theories is at the time, uh, and I give credence to this for a number of reasons, but a lot of the, the Templars ran to Scotland. Because Scotland's king, Robert the Bruce, was in a pitched battle for independence against the English, and he'd been excommunicated against from the church. So papal law had no sway in Scotland in 1307. So it'd be an so ideal would, hiding place for them haven. to... Exactly. And in 1317, at the uh, the Battle of Bannockburn, uh, Masonic lore tells us that uh, a group of those Templars were present that day. And this was the last great battle of the Scottish War Independence. Uh, Robert the Bruce's brother had made a rather foolish throwing down of the gauntlet to the English that said, meet us uh, in front of Stirling Castle on Midsummer's Eve, and we'll settle this once and for all. Well, the Bruce was kind of stuck with this, and for months planned his strategy. And sure enough, the English army showed up with Edward II, the king of, of England at the time, uh, in this little area, I've walked the, the battlefield there, and the battle went on for two days to a stalemate until close to the end of the second day on, on June 24th, a mysterious force comes over a hill, and this force of recruits or reinforcements was enough to rout the English army off the field, so badly, the Scots were almost able to capture Edward II. Now, history books tell us that this was women and children from the baggage trains holding up banners and clanging pots together. I've stood on the battlefield. I've stood on the hill that they would have come over. There's no way that would have forced an English route. You couldn't tell very easily what was coming over the hill. And Masonic lore tells us that it was a group of Templars that came in in full Templar garb and on horseback that changed the tide of the battle. I have no proof of that. No one's ever found any relics or anything at Bannockburn. And it's a great story, and I'd, I'd like to believe that it's true. Sorry. No, it, yeah. is a, it is a great story, and... Um... And I was thrilled too that you brought forward, you know, things like banking and checks and uh, or money orders or however you'd like to look at it, because I, I think so often with um, with all these sensational things uh, like Dan Brown's uh, books and mo the movies that have followed, um, that some of the real history, you know, there there may or may not have been some shadowy things. Nobody ever found the main part of their treasure, for example. So, yeah, there may, there surely was something going on. But you could leave all that out and just, just throw all the we're not so sure about this out, and they're just an amazing group uh, yeah. to me. Um, as you said, they're, they're there in the Crusades, supposedly to protect pilgrims on the roads 
coming in, and yet they're tolerant of the Muslim. And um, and they carried forward. The, it was it was really the Muslims that carried forward much of the, as you said, mathematical and hard science type knowledge, uh, or it might have died. Most definitely. I mean, the Muslims had uh, ways of treating the bubonic plague. They would lance boils uh, and drain drain them to treat the plague. Well, that was viewed as an unclean practice in Christian Europe at the time. Um, you know, any number of things that, that we could go through. Optics uh, is one. The, the Muslims had telescopes, or right. very crude telescopes, at the, at the time of the Crusades. I, a vast contribution to uh, science and mathematics come from the Islamic world. And before the Crusades, too, the majority of Islamic cities in Palestine were very tolerant of Jews that lived there. Most people don't understand that either. But uh, in Jerusalem, uh, before the First Crusades, there were quite a few Jews that lived in Jerusalem side by side with Muslims. And there was no problem. And somehow the bitterness of the Crusades has tainted the rest or the last thousand years of history uh, between cultures. And so if we go it, back to back to the Crusades, then what what was really the reason for the Crusades? Like, I mean, oh, well, was it, it, did it boil down to money? Yes. Mm-hmm. So Everything this, boils this, down, down to money. This huge battle that, for the most part, the general public um, learned that it's 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 really a religion-based war, um, and and we hear often that a lot of the wars in our history are about religion, um, but this sounds to me like it's all it's all money-based. It was all about and trade routes. Prior to prior to um, the war happening, there was no strife between the belief systems. Everybody was getting along fine. And even during the Crusades, now you're telling me this one small group of individuals, um, you know, was, even though they were supposed to be leading or a big part of this religious war, um, were, were completely tolerant of other people's belief systems. Well, not completely tolerant, but there are examples that they were tolerant in in instances. So any any conflict can be boiled down, especially the Crusades, to society needing a safety valve. Thank you, one of my history professors, Bill Kantz, for that. It was a great theory of his that I can be applied whenever populations get to a certain point within a certain area um, of course the natural resources are depleted there's no place for people to live there's no fortunes to be made so people look elsewhere to expand to get a little elbow room it happened in North America uh, with colonization here in the Native Americans it happened during the Crusades uh, we've got a convenient target. It's these heathens that hold the holy lands where Jesus tread. So it was a dual purpose. Um, it not only 
quenched a religious further within Europe, but it also gave the royal houses a way to give lands to their sons. Um, you know, back then, of course, you had large families, and upon a monarch's death or uh, uh, someone in the aristocracy's death, they would split the lands up amongst the children. So you keep splitting and splitting and splitting until there's nothing left. So you have to look somewhere else. So once again, they're they kind the reasons go hand in hand. It's it's not as straightforward as it simply being religion, and it's not as simple simple as it being just money. But the the two went hand in hand together to create the the situation of the Crusades, and those lasted three three hundred and fifty years almost. And it 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 almost reminds me of you know the religion was how they sold it to the to everyone. Sure, and Peter the Hermit sales yeah. job. Yeah, Much Peter like the Hermit had a great mass vision. destruction, maybe you know. Well, you know the the analogy. You can draw your own analogies to to what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan now. Yeah, I but there there are numerous times in during the history of the Crusades that um, the Crusaders were literally down and out. Uh, the first siege of Antioch is a great example. Uh, a man had a vision that the uh, Spear of Longinus was buried in this church in Antioch, and he found it. And all of a sudden, these very weak, very... Uh, cut off from their supply, crusaders were able to just about rout the Muslim forces because of this relic that they found. And it's a, it's an interesting time period to do some research into and has huge implications to the lives that we lead today, I mean, more so than a lot of periods in history do. So how do you, now she could, because the other thing that we have to mention to people is you're you're a thirty second degree Mason in the Scottish Rite. Yes, I am. Um, so how do because this this is where I get irritated, and I know um, a lot of people have done legitimate research in into the Grail Trail. How do the histories tie in with today's Masonics, and how did this whole massive conspiracy theory? come to be where, you know, John Q. Public, if they look in the wrong place, are being convinced that the Masons are out to get you. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of a two-part answer. The, the the first part of that is how are they interconnected? And I think, and uh, John G. Robinson, who was a history professor at, I believe, the University of Kentucky, wrote a great book called Born in Blood. And he wasn't a Mason, but he was fascinated with the Templars, too. And through his research, he presented a great argument that modern-day Freemasonry came from Templars that were on the run. Our, our sacred handshakes, our rituals, our words that we use to recognize each other were all part of that and evolved into modern-day Freemasonry. There's also some evidence of that at Roslyn Chapel, too. Uh, there's a great 
frieze on the out, one of the outside walls of a Templar with a person in it, something that every Mason in the world would recognize, and uh, uh, with a man with a rope around his neck, um, which is part of one of our rituals. Um, which everybody's going, why would you do that? Well, that's another long story. Symbolic. It, yeah, it's symbolic, guys. It's all symbolic. That's the whole the, thing. The, the entire Masonic um, lodge is set up, set up on symbolism. Exactly. But to answer your other question, why do we get the bad rap? Well, why does anybody in any conspiracy get the bad rap? Because it's easier to blame someone else for your misfortune. I don't. I'm not saying that conspiracies don't happen. Conspiracies happen every day. Conspiracies happen in offices. Conspiracies happen within families. You know, don't tell mom that we ate the last cupcake is a conspiracy. You know, don't tell the boss that I uh, sloughed off on my paperwork and went to see the the ball game is a conspiracy. But when you have a group of any group that's does something a little different than the norm that appears to be successful, whose members seem to be successful, that have closed meetings, well they they've got to be up to something, don't they? That's how we end up getting the bad rap. Uh and you look at very successful Masons over the years, and you see people like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and the founders of America. They were all Masons. Were, was America created because they were Masons and because of some great Masonic edict that whoever the boogeyman in Masonry most people think exist, which really doesn't, uh, sat on his throne on high and said, you know what, guys, we're going to create a Masonic country. No, that didn't happen. What did happen is our basic tenets of tolerance, open-mindedness, freedom of speech, those were all things that were, once again, unheard of in colonial times. In a lodge, I'm free to speak my mind, and I'm not, I don't have the fear that anyone is going to repeat anything that I say. I can speak out against anything. We don't discuss religion or politics. Those are our only two rules. But any man that believes in a higher power can join a Masonic lodge. And once again, religious tolerance. These are things that that are groundbreaking ideas here. And yes, they were incorporated into the virgining country of America. Were they, was it because there was some vast conspiracy? No. When you get like-minded individuals together to do anything, they're going to, you're going to find each other just like you found me. Nikki. Yeah. That wasn't a conspiracy. No. It happened because like-minded people tend to act as one when they when they get together. So that's my answer in a nutshell there. The conspiracy is easy. 
I mean, look, in the last few weeks, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, if you notice, and I sometimes will go through people's posts on Facebook that are my friends, and early on, the conspiracy was, oh, this didn't make the news feed on Facebook because Facebook's trying to suppress it, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Eh, don't believe that so much. I believe that it nobody tripped the triggers that would put that in the news feed. So there's there's a lot of convenient ways to explain away things that we don't like by branding it a conspiracy. Well, and like you said, it's easy. Um particularly when you have a group that has any sort of secrecy or closed meetings or what are they doing over there? You've got to go through all kind of stuff to be a member. And then you've got to go through some more stuff to be a bigger member. And But they won't tell you about their stuff. Uh, well, you know, I'm Skull gonna... and Bones and all these groups, uh, yes, do conspiracies happen. But uh, I think that that members of Masonic Lodges were in part because of the tolerance they were somewhat free thinkers the yes. the freedom of speech the tolerance of other views to be able to look at them and and take what resonates take what works for you and leave the rest um uh, you know leads to some scientific thought and some thought about rights and some you know very revolutionary ideas very very strange non mainstream ideas really at the time at the time yes and and I have to say, I mean, because like I said, as part of my own journey, I have had to do research, and it seems to me pretty much every city I go to, I manage to stumble um, upon another Mason. Um, and something that John Q. Public really needs to know is that these are a lot of these men are just ordinary family men, and oh. you know, businessmen, and. They will answer as many questions as you ask that they can answer. And when you talk about the symbolism and and the rituals that go on behind the walls, inside the lodge, you can't tell me that the Catholic Church doesn't also have rituals. Um, every, Every belief system and religion in the world has some kind of ritualistic system that's well, inside it. it. Yeah. And they have countries do it we even with our in within our own families and groups of friends we have our own rituals if you think about it you know sunday getting together dinner is a ritual uh dad carving the turkey at thanksgiving is a ritual it it's something that there there's something powerful about that that binds people together that makes us special to one to one another, and I I think that's what a lot of people miss today. Um, there's not that sense anymore that you know our activities have a, a a lot of different meanings to them, and meanings that that we can pass on to our children and be a bigger part of us. So. Anyway, sorry. No, I mean, but jump right in there. But yeah, no, no that's excellent. It, it because it is true. 
ritual goes on. Ritual goes on everywhere with everyone. We pick up. We're creatures of habit. Um, we kind of like habit. They're comfy. Um, and many have argued, even today, educators and psychologists and things, that the best way to teach someone something and and be sure that it registers with their memory is to make it involve not just listening, but some doing and some talking and some smelling and and that symbol symbols and stories, as opposed to just facts, are more ex- accepted, more easy to remember, more meaningful, really. And, um, uh, you know, I think we all grew up with with stories, even if they were very short and might not have been considered that way, but there's many things that were told over and over again every time the family got together, and that's... That's ritual and and history through storytelling. Exactly, exactly. It's an oral tradition. And you're exactly right. And once again, we're we're talking about things masonry wise and in in culture from times where people weren't literate. So we had to have those oral traditions. We had to have those other markers, those symbolic markers to remind us of things because we couldn't pick up a book necessarily and read it because most of the people didn't know how to. So, yes, there's a lot of symbols in masonry. And, yes, they. whenever I see a beehive, I think industry because that's what, once again, we're taught that that symbol means. But the other cool thing about it, about masonry too is we're also admonished that all these symbols and all this system is meant for you to discern on your own that all the symbols will mean different things to different people given their own frame of reference doesn't sound like an organization that's out to rule the world when they say alright here's what we got here's this buffet of, of esoteric stuff uh, but we're going to let you figure it out on your own, and we're going to let you assign the meaning that you want to assign to it, not what somebody else says. And whatever that meaning is that you assign to it for yourself is just fine with us. Yeah, exactly. You know, it can mean all sorts of different things to all sorts of different people. And, you know, once again, I I can't understand why people would would assign a conspiratorial mindset to an organization that is free as freely accepting of their symbolism is that because once again we all know that symbols have power too just like ritual does well i think a lot of it again it's it's that us and them mentality that people are just afraid to ask they're afraid to ask they um see the ring or they see you know some kind of symbol that that you can recognize because in today's society, a lot of masons wear their ring. They wear, oh. I mean, you know, they're you know that they're members of the lodge. Um, the, the lodges are out in the open. Uh, they're they're certainly not hiding what they're doing, but people see the ring and they have this sense of separation because some of the activities take place behind closed doors. But I went to guides and we had meetings in the basement of a church behind closed doors. You know, people didn't 
Scouts Canada, they have meetings in rooms with closed doors. Mm. I, it's 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 frustrating for me to think that people will would rather base their beliefs on an assumption made on information they they get from um, either the internet, movies, a book, rather than actually go up to a member of the lodge and start asking them questions. How did you get involved with the lodge? Where you know. Why would what you do it, that? What's why it about? Why would you do that? What, yeah. What's it about? Um, what What are your beliefs surrounding the lodge? What do you guys do? I know you can't tell us a lot about what goes on in the meetings, but you can. I mean, uh, the yeah. lodge is actually yeah. actually you I, can tell I can. A lot about what goes on. I think because no, but it's, it's pretty like, boring stuff. Well, <laughs> I know that to get in, even to get in, you have to um, you have to show that you're socially responsible. It's sure. be accepted within the lodge you have to go through a system a series of of they call them rights but to show that you're socially responsible as far as giving back to your society now that didn't that to me does not sound like a secret society that's out to control the world no i mean you know and i'm i'm in a lodge with uh one of my buddies in scottish right was the assistant chief of police here in nashville He is the chief police, I think, at Vanderbilt now, or was. I've kind of lost track of him. And I remember one Scottish right meeting, he was sitting next to me, and the guy sitting on the other side of me was a plumber. You know, we don't make those distinctions. It doesn't matter what a man does uh, in his real job, you know, in society. We're all equals there. And, yes, there is there's a a series of questions that you were posed that every lodge will have, they call it an inquisitorial board, that you'll sit down with three or four of the guys and they'll ask things like, do you have a family? Well, yeah. Well, do you have life insurance? It's not because they want to know if there's money in it for the lodge if you died. They want to know that you're taking care of your family. Are you gainfully employed? Once again, can you take care of yourself and take care of the people that that you were responsible to, or the reasons for those questions? And you're you're exactly right. And we're primarily a charitable organization now. I mean, the yeah. Scottish Rite and the Shrine do great work. Do great work for children. Do great work in in many areas of society. I think there's, to some extent, sort of built into society, I don't know if it's too many stories about boogeymen when we're kids. Um, I have another website besides Everyday Connection called Nestor Speaks. I I channel. Um, My father found out about it. I hadn't really talked to him about it because I felt it would be something that could just be a controversy, so why bother? And... um, so anyway, he went and looked at it, took a very brief look at it, and then he asked me, he said, so you're trying to set up a miniature uh, L. Ron Hubbard operation? And he's talking about Scientology. And uh, and I just kind of was stunned because Nestor and I don't ever talk about anything except individual sovereignty, and you are the authority of your life. Uh, you want to be a leader, you need to lead your life. Uh, absolutely nothing about conforming to diddly squat you know and uh, 
so I mean it's almost a night and day opposite. But there seems to be some sort of a oh, this is off the mainstream weirdness. That's some of them weird people. It's all hocus pocus. <laughs> you know, abracadabra. It's all going to be better. Just think good, the happy thoughts. You know, and that's not in there either. But uh, uh, so I again question everything can help solve that. You know, okay, I, I have a tendency to have a knee-jerk reaction, and, and, and part of it is based, I think, Masons have a sense of belonging. Uh, you know, you can be in some city that you don't know and and around people that you don't know and identify another Mason through signs and symbols and things, and you've got, or you're both wearing the ring. That's That's a real good... Uh, you know, secret symbol that we're both Masons. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. and but you then you sort of instantly have this connection, right? And belonging, and I think that that has gone missing out of society, sure. industrialized society. So they're also facing something that they are really missing in their own life, and 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 want, and I, I, so I, they get a little jealous of it. I think sometimes. I, I certainly agree. I mean, and that's one of the things that, that I've taught my son Robert, too, is if we're one of the, the people that you can trust, if, God forbid, something happened to me, if you see a Mason out there, you know, he's probably a good man. And I say probably because in my heart of hearts, every person I've met in a Masonic Lodge is a great guy. Is a stand-up fellow that you sit around with and have a beer with and and let borrow your toolkit and know that he'd bring it back. So, once again, it would be somebody that I wouldn't trust with my child should tragedy befall me. The same thing with Laura. You know, we've done some traveling. You know, honey, if everything goes to crap, find a lodge, you know. There will be somebody there to help you. And you're right, that's comforting to me to know that I would do the same thing for, for anybody else's family. And we have a Widows and Orphans Fund set up for just that reason. If you know a, a widow or orphan of one of us finds themselves in a bad situation in their life, they can always come to the lodge. And, you know, they're they're always welcome. And we'll always try to help, but that's conspiratorial. Yeah, sounds too that's, much. Sounds too much like the AAA to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry, <laughs> that, that's a good <laughs> analogy. It's much more than that, but it. But to me, it's almost like you know. Okay, let's see. He's got this sticker on his car, and any city he's in, he can just there's people to help him, and I got nobody to help me. What? It 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 it. Uh, it's kind of it's silly to me. Excuse. Yeah, it's kind of silly to me the the conspiratorial thing. There's a there's there's a conspiracy to be good good citizens and good friends, uh, best as I can tell, and we can use all that we can get. Uh, yeah, and it's funny too. I, a quick plug here: one of my authors, her name's Heather Carver. She is a wife of a past master here in Nashville, and she wrote a book called Walking with a Little Son that is kind of debunks a lot of this, too. But one of the chapters in the book is called The New World Order Fish Fry. And she makes mention of if 
Yeah, I know. It was kind of funny. But, you know, if we're in control of everything, why do you always see Masonic Lodge raising money through a pancake breakfast or through a fish fry? Believe me, if you guys have ever sat through, sat through a lodge meeting or a building committee meeting, you would know that there's got to be somebody better out there at controlling the world and world finances and events than us. Because, like any other group, you get guys bickering about the minutia of things, too, and it's almost unnerving. That's why I say, yeah, I can talk a lot about what happens in Lodge because it's fairly standard business-like stuff. I mean, you know, things like reading the minutes from last week or, you know, this Lodge is doing this next week. Uh, those type things, housekeeping duties that any organization has to go through. And once again, it's not the most exciting thing in the world sometimes. So, yeah, there's uh, there's yeah. not a, a whole lot of, you know, devil worship or goats <laughs> or uh, sacrifices of virgins. or Hadn't seen any of that in my hadn't, day. Hadn't seen much of that going on. No, sure hadn't. No, but no. I'll let you know. You guys will be the first to know. And I can tell you, I've, I've never really had the opportunity to talk to my father about it. And he was a 32nd degree uh, Scottish Rite. And then he went on to the shrine and became a Shriner. And then he, after a while, became inactive. But for a while, he was very active. And um, and I just know my father. You know, I have, like I say, I haven't really talked to him about Masons. But I know my dad. And he would never associate himself with I mean he kind of lives by the motto of don't even have the appearance of anything wrong much less anything wrong he just wouldn't he would go immediately he would leave yeah. and um has left organizations over much less you know and um so it's just silly to me but there's a lot of silliness and shenanigans that we love to talk about and we've taking a little bit of extra time. Bless all of you in the chat room that have hung out with us. Um, I honestly so we, think we, some of them could listen to Brian talk all night. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's very, very interesting about all stuff. And, um, um, and, and it's nice to be able to get someone that can calmly, you know, explain that, look, there's, there really is some good stuff to the Knights Templar, you know, forget all the craziness. Sure. Um, and uh, really some good stuff to the Masons and the Shrines, you know. So, uh, yeah, anyway, it, uh, we did talk about the publishing. We kind of talked about it first. Um, I know that we have authors and writers and people that enjoy expressing themselves with a pen in our chat room and in our podcast listening crowd. Uh, we're going to have lots of links up on the website. Uh, okay, right. But uh, let's... Uh, uh, let's give out all the links of how people can can find you and hook up with you for our pad, podcast listeners that uh, aren't seeing the website. The the easiest way is to go to our website, which is www.gravedistractions.com, and we've got a, a contact page that's got email addresses. Um, my personal email address is brian at gravedistractions.com. Go figure. Um, I've got our business phone number up there. You can call me. I say any time. I like to sleep sometimes. So, um, but yeah, give me a holler. We we can help folks out, and you know we do everything from traditional publishing. And I know on the website I need to up, 
update this a little bit. And we do mercenary publishing, too. I don't know how else to put it. But if you're interested in just getting a little help and doing your own thing and having us you know, drift off into the night, we can do that, too. So whatever your needs are, we'll we'll figure out something for you. I mean, if it's a cover or if it's uh, just getting an ebook conversion done and you don't want to ever hear Grave Distractions again except this little bit of help, we can help you. So that's that's what we do. And it really is, folks. If you're an author, it's, it's, it, it's a company started by an author, so knows how to look at it from your angle. And uh, uh, check them out at www.gravedistractions.com. And for goodness sakes, go get the book because I know I'm I'm gonna you know patiently wait, not so patiently wait for it to show up in the mail because it sounds like it's chock full of some really fascinating stories, and well, and so. not all of them from you know that long ago. Some of them sound oh, fairly no. recent. Oh yeah, we've got all sorts of stuff out there. I mean, of course your your books, Nikki. I mentioned Walking with a Widow's Son. We've got fiction out there. One of one of the, the guys we support is a professor at Western Kentucky University, a history professor there. He writes fiction, uh, has a great book called Prior Knowledge that's a, a murder mystery in a Benedictine priory in Mississippi in the 60s, which is a great setting. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, you know, I mentioned Ken Hudnell's books. We just released a digital edition of, of a book called Graves of the Golden Bear, which is about by Rick Osman uh, that deals with the theory that Columbus was not the first to get to North America. And Rick has some some good compelling information there to the more paranormal stuff, um, goddess enchantment. This I got to talk about this real quick if I got a second. Sure. Really yeah, we can give you time. Okay, really proud of this. We did our first full-color book, or two books, this summer. Um, an author in London, her name's Carrie Kirkpatrick, she's a psychic, and she's also a pagan witch. And she had a project of, she called Magic, uh, Goddess Enchantment, Magic and Spells. And they were beautifully photographed books with goddesses that are everyday women, and spells and empowerment techniques all throughout the book. And we released the first two volumes of those. And Carrie's great to talk to. The books came out beautifully. I didn't even know if I could do it to begin with. Don't tell Carrie that. But, um, you know, we figured out a way to get them printed in in, in England for and So we can we can do some, some great things if we put our mind to it. And we have have not only the, the support of good creative people, but um, good ideas. And it can all happen. But th- those are some, some great books, though. And we've got all sorts of stuff out there. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, we'll well make folks, sure we appreciate you hanging out with us a little bit extra. We will have a link uh, not only to the websites. We'll have some uh, direct links to pick up the book. Uh, on the article page on our website. Uh, And I just want to briefly mention, we want everybody to join us again next week. Next Tuesday, we have a very special guest. Meredith Murphy is going to be joining us. Uh, I know that's going to be an amazing call. And uh, then on Thursday next week, we have a set of 16-year-old twins 
who have taken it upon themselves to publish, uh, gosh, they must have almost uh, 20, uh, I know it's well over a dozen uh, videos on Ascension uh, from a 16-year-old's viewpoint. So that's going to be, uh, I'm looking forward to that one myself. I'm looking forward to both of them. Of course, we do this because we have fun doing it, don't we, Jean? Yeah, yeah, we really do. <laughs> So join us again. Ryan, thanks so much for coming and sharing with us. You're going to have to come visit again. I would gladly do that. I've had a blast. I always love doing things like this, but you guys have been great. It was tons of fun. Um, And I guess we'll talk to you soon, since you're my publisher or not. Yeah. (laughs) And and hopefully we'll talk talk with all the rest of you again next Tuesday. You all have a great uh, weekend. Bye-bye. Lots of love. Take care. Join Rick and Jean again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and be sure to like their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection. Worried you might miss an episode? Don't worry, subscribe. Find us on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.